Good Risings. I'm Jackie. And I'm Brian. And this is Grateful Grains. Welcome back. This week, we're taking a look at creativity. We got it started Monday with creative permission. Tuesday, we learned four lessons. Wednesday, we looked at habits of originality. Yesterday, we explored the link between boredom and genius, and we're wrapping it up today with elusive creativity. Elizabeth Gilbert introduces herself by saying, writing books is her profession, but it's more than that. It's also her great lifelong love and fascination, and she doesn't expect that's ever going to change. That said, something kind of peculiar happened in her life and in her career, which has caused her to recalibrate her whole relationship with her work. And that peculiar thing is that she wrote a memoir called Eat, Pray, Love, which, decidedly unlike any of her other previous books, went out into the world for some reason and became a mega sensation, international bestseller. The result of which is that everywhere she goes now, people treat her like she's doomed. They say, aren't you afraid you're never going to be able to top that? Aren't you afraid you're going to keep writing for your whole life and you're never again going to create a book that anybody in the world cares about at all ever again? Gilbert says it's bad. But it would be worse if she didn't happen to remember that over 20 years ago, when she was a teenager, when she first started telling people that she wanted to be a writer, she was met with the same sort of fear-based reaction. Back then, people would say, aren't you afraid you're never going to have any success? Aren't you afraid the humiliation of rejection will kill you? Aren't you afraid that you're going to work your whole life at this craft and nothing's ever going to come of it? Gilbert shares that the short answer to all of those questions is yes. Yes, she's afraid of those things. And she always has been. And she's afraid of many, many more things besides that that people can't even guess at. But when it comes to writing, the thing that she's been thinking about and wondering about is why. Is it rational? Is it logical that anybody should be expected to be afraid of the work that they feel they were put on this earth to do? She explains it's exceedingly likely that her greatest success is behind her. It's the kind of thought that could lead a person to start drinking at nine o'clock in the morning. She'd prefer to keep doing the work that she loves instead. And so the question becomes, how? It seems to her, upon a lot of reflection, that the way that she has to work now in order to continue writing is that she has to create a protective psychological construct. She has to find a way to have a safe distance between her, as she's writing, and her very natural anxiety about what the reaction to that writing is going to be. It's led to a lot of digging, a search for models on how to do it across time and throughout societies. And that search led her to ancient Greece and ancient Rome, where people did not happen to believe that creativity came from human beings, but from divine attendant spirits that came to human beings from some distant and unknowable source for distant and unknowable reasons. The Greeks famously called these divine attendant spirits of creativity daemons. Socrates famously believed that he had a daemon who spoke wisdom to him from afar. Gilbert shares that this allowed ancient artists a sort of protection from certain things. For example, too much narcissism. If your work was brilliant, you couldn't take all the credit for it. Everybody knew that you had this disembodied genius who helped you. If your work bombed, it's not entirely your fault. And this is how people thought about creativity in the West for a very long time. And then the Renaissance came and everything changed. 
and we had this big idea to put the individual human being at the center of the universe above all gods and mysteries. It's the beginning of rational humanism. People started to believe that creativity came completely from the self of the individual. And for the first time in history, you start to hear people referring to this or that artist as being a genius rather than having a genius. Gilbert commiserates that it was huge error, allowing somebody, one mere person, to believe that he or she is the vessel, the font and the essence, and the source of all divine, creative, unknowable, eternal mystery is just a smidge too much responsibility to put on one fragile human psyche. It completely warps and distorts egos, and it creates all these unimaginable expectations about performance. Gilbert asserts that the pressure of that has been killing off our artists for the last 500 years. You can see it in how artists suffer from their gifts. Gilbert goes on to share that centuries ago in the deserts of North Africa, people used to gather for sacred music and dances would go on for hours and hours until dawn. They were always magnificent because the dancers were professional and they were terrific. But every once in a while, very rarely, something would happen and one of these performers would actually become transcendent. We've all seen a performance like this. It's like time stops and the dancer would sort of step through some kind of portal and he wasn't doing anything different than he'd ever done before, a thousand nights before, but everything would align. And all of the sudden, he would no longer appear to be merely human. He would be lit from within and lit from below and all lit on fire with divinity. And when this happened, back then people knew it for what it was and they'd call it by its name. They'd put their hands together and they'd start to chant, Allah, 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 God, God, God. She adds as a historical footnote, when the Moors invaded southern Spain, they took this custom with them and the pronunciation changed over the centuries from Allah, Allah, Allah to Ole, 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 which you still hear in bullfights and flamenco dances. We're witnessing the incomprehensible. There it is, a glimpse of God. Gilbert goes on to say, the tricky part comes the next morning for the dancer himself. He wakes up and discovers that it's Tuesday at 11 a.m., and he's no longer a glimpse of God. He's just an aging mortal, and he may never ascend to that height again. And maybe nobody will ever chant God's name again as he spins. And what is he then to do with the rest of his life? Gilbert shares, this is hard. This is one of the most painful reconciliations to make in a creative life. But maybe it doesn't have to be quite so full of anguish if we never happen to believe in the first place that the most extraordinary aspects of our being came from us at all. But maybe if we just believed that they were on loan to us from some unimaginable source for some exquisite portion of our life to be passed along when we're finished for somebody else to use. If we can think about a creative life in this way, if we can access our creative genius in this way, it starts to change everything. Thanks so much for joining us on Grateful Grains. You can find us on Instagram at Good Risings, or you can find me at B McMuffin. And you can find me at Jacqueline M. Wood underscore one. See you again Monday. Until then, remember, a better tomorrow starts with today. Good Risings is presented by Cavalry Audio.